Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you guys. Uh, today, we are kicking off a brand new teaching series called 72 Hours as we begin to walk through the book of Jonah. And so we just want to welcome you here to Champaign. Those of you who are joining us online or over at our banner, we're glad that you are spending this time with us. Now, the book of Jonah is one that a lot of people are somewhat familiar with it. They know that there's a guy named Jonah. They know there's a giant fish. If you're like me, your mind kind of jumps to that scene in Pinocchio. And so that's why we titled this series 72 Hours, because most people, when they think of the story of Jonah, their mind instantly goes to those three days, those 72 hours where he's trapped inside the belly of the great fish, and it's all slimy and gross, and what was it really like? And, and, and that's kind of about it. That's really where our understanding of Jonah usually caps out. And we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is that Jonah is actually extremely deep. There's a lot of richness to this story that we're going to dive into. You see, Jonah isn't just about a fish. It's not uh, really so much about Jonah himself. Rather, it's a book about God. It's a book about God's sovereign reign and control over everything. Over the next four weeks, we'll kind of show you that this is kind of the big idea that we see throughout the book of Jonah. It's that God's will will be done whether with us or in spite of us. That God's grand plan, his mission, his gospel, God has a will, he has a plan for us to be involved. And as, you, as we read through Jonah together, we're probably gonna see a lot of these instances where God's gonna do what God's gonna do, whether we're on board or not, whether we're tracking along with him or running the opposite way. And that's kind of what we're gonna start off with the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah's interesting, so what we're gonna do this morning is I'm gonna kind of set the stage, give us a little context from the entire book before we begin to dive in. And so the book of Jonah kind of follows this cycle. It follows this cadence um, two times over. First, we're going to see God's going to speak directly to Jonah. God's going to say, hey, Jonah, uh, I've, got a, I've got an idea. I've got a plan. There's something that I want you to take part in. I need you to do something with me, for me, on, on your behalf. And Jonah's going to make a decision. He's going to make a choice, and it's going to lead him to an encounter with pagans. Now, what I mean by pagans is just the non-Jewish people that Ju Jonah is going to run into over and over and over again. And he's going to have an encounter. It's going to kind of do some pretty drastic things in his life, but specifically in the lives of those that Jonah interacts with. But then it's going to lead to this time in which Jonah talks with God. He's going to talk very intently, very passionately. He's going to pout like a five-year-old at times. So those of you with kids, you know you're going to be able to resonate really simply with Jonah. But one of the most interesting things, don't miss this, about the book of Jonah is that we hear kind of the story. We kind of hear of the cycle. We kind of begin to understand what happens. And the man from the beginning that we think ought to be the hero, the one who's going to save the day, the one who's going to kind of be the one who comes out shining, Jonah, the prophet of God, is actually the one who kind of comes out looking the worst. You see, over the book, of, throughout the book of Jonah, we're going to be able to compare and contrast Jonah with the Gentiles that we're going to see him interact with. So we have Jonah. He's a prophet. He's a man of God set aside to deliver the good news. He's a Jewish man who, who, who lived in the kingdom of God and trying to bring others. That was his job. That was his role. And then he's going to interact with the pagans, the Gentiles, the people who don't believe in God himself. Maybe they have false gods, fake gods, small gods that aren't true or real. But throughout the book, we're going to see that Jonah is actually going to be the one who rejects God twice. So what do you think about this for a moment? What happens when the irreligious people act more religious than the religious people. Just think about that for a moment. 
Because that's what we're going to see throughout the book of Jonah. This tension is going to build and develop. That what happens when the man of God doesn't do the God-honoring thing, but in fact does the exact opposite. You see, the Gentiles, the pagans, they're going to be the ones who repent and turn to God twice over. Jonah, the one who's supposed to be loving and kind and merciful and compassionate and an example of God's heart is going to be the one who treats the foreigners with discontent, yet they will treat Jonah with this immense respect, even though we would not think they would. And lastly, we're going to see Jonah pout. He's going to dismiss God kind of think that God's lost his mind, doesn't know what he's doing, and the people who are far from God will be the ones who praise and repent to God. But ultimately, where you and I fit into the story of Jonah, where we find ourselves throughout the story of Jonah, is that Jonah is all about how people, the people of God, run and hide. The people of God, we run, we hide from God. And no matter how far we run or our best efforts to hide, God is still pursuing us. And that might be something for you to start with this morning. You might be here this morning and it's been a long time. You might be here this morning giving God the first chance or perhaps God the last chance. You might be here this morning saying, I've, I've made a real big mess of my life. I don't know if God wants anything to do with me in any way, shape, or form. And let me tell you this, that Jonah's going to speak directly to you. There's going to be some stark realities. There's going to be some hard truths, but ultimately it's going to teach us about the loving God who pursues us regardless of no matter how far we run or no matter how hard we try to keep hidden from him, that God is still after you and I. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. You know, it makes sense studying Jonah. So every week over the next four weeks, you can open your Bible to the book of Jonah. Jonah's found in the Old Testament, a few books after Psalms. So if you go to Psalms halfway, go to the right, you're going to stumble into Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1, here's where we started off. It says this. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil, that's important to note, has come up before me. It says, But Jonah... He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship waiting to go to Tarshish. So he paid the fee and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And this is kind of our setup. This is where we're going to start this morning talking about Jonah. So we get introduced to Jonah. And Jonah's name means dove, kind of this meek, humble bird, and son of Amittai means son of my faithfulness. So in a lot of ways, this is somewhat of a foreshadowing. There's going to be elements of Jonah's mission and elements of Jonah's life that kind of project who Jesus is for us. Not all of his life, because he's going to mess quite a few things up, but it's kind of what's happening here. But we learn about Jonah actually in 2 Kings, that he was actually the prophet under King Jeroboam II. Now, King Jeroboam II, during in the ancient Israelite time was the worst king of all time. He was literally just terrible. He was just a, a horrible king. He was oppressive. He, would, he was, he was pro-slavery. He would use strong military tactics to keep people under bondage. And Jonah was seen as someone who supported him. So here we have a man of God, a prophet of God, who is following a king who's not making the wisest choices. And then God kind of says, okay, Jonah, I need you to get up. I need you to go to Nineveh. I need you to get preaching. And here's what I want you to know about Nineveh. It's not a place that you or I would ever want to go. Because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria was this barbaric country of people. 
They were vile, they were hostile, they were very, very cruel. There's recorded accounts in which the kings of Nineveh, get this, uh, maybe, I don't know, okay, let me just put that. The kings of Nineveh, they were so brutal that uh, they, they, they would capture cities, and then as a result of their, of their winning, so to speak, they would just decide to burn the city to the ground. Just because they could, just because they had the power, the strength, because they wanted to. There's even accounts of, of how barbaric they would be. They would, they would capture a city, they would pull people out of their homes, they would skin them, they would pull out their tongues and plaster it all throughout the city to show how strong they were. These are the people, okay, that God has said, you need to go to them. <laughs> you know, hey, hey, Jonah, you know those people who like, like just get rid of people for fun? You know those people who, who pull out tongues and use it as posters in their office? Those are the people I want you to go to. Those are the people I want you to go say, your evil must stop, you must turn and repent to me. Now on top of that, though, think about this. Is that Nineveh, those people are the object of God's heart. The object of God's missionary outreach, that God cares for them. And so, just in the simplest terms, if you were to stop at those three verses, shouldn't this story be easy? Shouldn't, like, like, shouldn't this story just be so simple? We've got a group of people who are so far from God, they are so evil, and here we have a loving God. And God picks a go-between, a man of God, to go deliver them good news. This should be easy. He should say, okay, God, I trust you. I'm going to go to those people. I'm going, I'm going to preach your message of, of what they are doing is evil. It must stop and that you are loving and you will accept them and make them righteous in your own work. This should be easy, right? And what does Jonah do? He runs the other way. Because Jonah essentially begins to ask, why should a good and loving God give those people a second chance? Why should a God uh, who, who is good and loving, how might he even consider giving those people another opportunity? And so Jonah runs the other way. See, throughout Jonah, there's this phrase, but Jonah, that happens multiple times over throughout the four-chapter epic. It's to make a stark reality that God calls Jonah, he calls a man of God to do something, and he decides to do the opposite. God says, go here and do this, but Jonah says, no, 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 I'm going to go there and do that instead. But the interesting thing about Jonah that we cannot miss is every time there is a but Jonah moment, it's followed up with a but God moment. Every time Jonah makes a mistake, every time Jonah gets himself into trouble, God is still seen there, pursuing him. He is not leaving Jonah alone to his own devices. And so, so here it begins. This is but Jonah. He gets afraid. He runs. He pays the fee to get on a boat and go to Tarshish instead of going to Nineveh. God says, Jonah, I need you to get up and go east. And Jonah says, no, 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 I'm going to go west instead. Where Jonah was, in order to get to Nineveh, he would have crossed by land, and instead he finds a boat to go by sea. He says, go to Nineveh, the great big capital city of Assyria. And Jonah says, no, no, I'm going to go to Tarshish. Nobody's really heard of it. It's kind of off the beaten path. No one really knows it's there. And perhaps at this moment, you and I can somewhat relate to Jonah. How many times has God given us a mission, a directive, a call, an act of obedience in which we have said, oh, you want me to do that? <laughs> oh, man, I, I, I don't know. I think I might do something else instead. But there's a big piece of theology that we see from the outskirts 
is notice what it said that Jonah was running away from. It didn't say that Jonah was running out of, out of a fear. He wasn't running out of anger. It didn't say he ran away from Nineveh. What did it say? It said he was running away from the presence of God. This is a big piece of theology for us just right here in the beginning of the book of Jonah, that to run from God's will is to run from God himself. That running from God's will is the same as running from God. Let me put it this way. Let's just say you met someone who, was, who claims to be a big Illinois fan and you begin to have a conversation with them and you say, oh, so you know who the great Red Grange is? And they looked at you like, what? Who's that? Or you met someone who says, oh, I love blues music. And you're like, okay, cool. And, and you play them the deep vibrato of B.B. King and they're like, oh, I've never heard of this guy. Who might that be? Right? And so in the similar way, when we run from God's will... We are also choosing to leave God behind. When we reject God's will, we are pushing him away at the same time. This is a garden issue that goes all the way back to our origin of sin and pride with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve took the the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit, they were actually seen running out of God's presence. They didn't just break his will, they broke a relationship with God. And it's this moment in which Jonah is probably asking the same question that you and I have asked many times before. God, do you know best or do I? God, do you really know what you're doing or do I know what's truly best? Go to Nineveh. Sometimes the will of God does not make sense. Sometimes when it comes down to it, the order of obedience is one that does not compute with us in our head or perhaps our heart. And it's in that moment we must ask ourselves, do I trust God? That the act of obedience should always exist, even if the understanding does not. This is a lot of our Christian faith. This is a lot of what we're called to to live out as disciples. There are things that, that on the surface perhaps we don't get or understand, and we must ask ourselves, do I trust God as a result? God says, everything you make, 10% is mine. You tithe it back to me. I have given you the ability to work. I've given you the ability to earn. Trust me. God says, to forgive as you have first been forgiven. The world says, hold grudges, be bitter. It's okay. Hold it over their heads. And God says, no, no, no. The better way is to forgive as you have been forgiven. Do you trust him? Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans chapter 12 says, do we trust when God calls us to an act of obedience we don't initially understand? You see, if we believe we have God, let me put it this way. If we believe we have God, but reject his will for our lives, we don't actually have God. We have a spiritual tchotchke on our shelf. We have an idol that we think is, is, is here to bring us good luck, to make us feel better, but we don't actually have a God. We clearly have a tchotchke that just seems to be in the form of the sovereign Yahweh. And this is where the story of Jonah begins to reveal it's not just about a man. It's so much more than just a fish but it gets cast and molded into our hearts and lives too. And so this is going to be the reoccurring kind of question and theme for all of us over this next couple weeks. Are you open to wrestle with, to consider how you run and hide from God? Because we all, by nature, we run and hide. Perhaps it's a mistrust of God. Perhaps it's a matter of priority. But ultimately, it's ultimately deep down an issue of the heart. 
You see, Jonah's running and hiding is an issue of his heart. Not what he was proclaiming outwardly, not necessarily who people thought him to be, and perhaps that's something that you can resonate with. It brings into mind when when the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. We need to constantly evaluate the state of our heart, especially before God. And so God, he comes comes to Jonah. He, He talks with Jonah, and he says, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. They have done evil. We need to put a stop to it. Have a place in their story of redemption. Reveal my kingdom to them. Jonah, isn't this going to be amazing? And Jonah goes, no, dude. I'm out. I'm out. I don't trust you. I don't think you know what you're doing. And so he runs the other way. Why? Because he doesn't want those people to even have a glimmer of hope. He doesn't think those people are worthy of God's forgiveness. You see, Jonah's motives, they're not revealed until chapter four, until this cycle kind of goes two times over. But we will see that Jonah doesn't run out of a fear of failure, but Jonah's going to run out of being afraid of success. And here's what I mean by that. Jonah doesn't run out of a fear of God not being merciful, he's going to reveal that in his heart he didn't want God to be merciful. That Jonah runs not out of failure, but out of fear that God would forgive them. See, Jonah wants wants God to take care of those dirty pagan Ninevites. He wants God to to give those people what they deserve. He wants God to to, to really show them what they have earned in life. He's got this self-righteousness that is welling up within him. And instead of going and being compassionate and loving, he says, no, not to those people. They're not worth it. They're not worth my time. I don't think they are deserving of this. You see, in verse 9 of chapter 1, we're going to see that, that, that as, as Jonah is having this interaction with these pagan sailors, they ask Jonah, who are you? And as a man of God, wouldn't you think the first thing out of his mouth would be, I am a prophet sent by God. I have this relationship with the sovereign creator, Lord. But instead, the first thing that's going to come out of Jonah's mouth in verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew. He talks about his ethnicity. He talks about his race, that Jonah's allegiance is first to his people than it is to his own God. He had zero desire, Jonah, to do anything gracious for their dirty, pagan Ninevites. See, that's what sin does to us. If we let sin take root in our hearts, sin tells us we must be and feel superior to others in order to to feel good about ourselves. See, in a modern context for us, This happens to to you and I alike at times. That Jonah's identity was revealed in his self-righteousness, played out in a withholding of goodness because they were not like he was. They did not look like him. They did not talk like him. They did not act like him, think like him. He was uncomfortable with them, that he did not understand them. He could not comprehend their way of life. And so instead of being graceful and loving, he created a wall. He said, I do not believe I need to go to them. You see, it's easy for us to, to hear this and say, say, I would never be like Jonah. I would, I would never in a million billion years do something that obtuse, something that's so crazy. That does not define who I am. I would never, ever be like Jonah. Because Jonah, his, what he's doing is obvious, right? 
Like we're all sensing it, we're all seeing it. And then we all say though at some point, but, but could you really blame Jonah? I mean, who would really want to go to those people? Maybe he was kind of right. Maybe he had a good reason. Maybe there was something that, you know, yeah, 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 Jonah. I mean, I mean, the Ninevites, they were scary. They were mean. They were ugly people that nobody should really have spent time with them. I mean, it was those people should be avoided. But if we're not careful, we can let our enlightenment, we can let the things we realize, the ways in which we have learned and changed become a way to minimize the humanity around us. Let me give you a couple modern examples. A couple days ago, there was a couple states within the United States where the senators announced that um, the mask mandate is completely gone. They say, hey, businesses are 100% open. Masks are no longer uh, required. They can be just something if you want to wear one. And I kid you not, within minutes, within minutes, on my Facebook feed, I had posts of the same exact article and people on the exact opposite sides. One person says, finally, someone has woken up to the conspiracy. I need to move to those states. I need to be a part of that because I cannot take those people anymore who think that this is a real thing. Kid you not, right beneath it, the same exact article chosen, same exact article, a completely opposite end of the spectrum. Someone says, I cannot believe these senators. Do they not realize what they are doing? They are so obtuse. This is how the whole thing continues yet again. This is stupid. And what happens from this point forward is we begin to weaponize our opinion or perhaps our truth to treat other people as second class, second tier, to minimize them of the worth and value of God. I've seen this in, in another really stark way in which over the events over the last year of, of the racial and social tensions that have happened in our country, in our lives that we have all felt and seen, of people beginning to wake up and to understand their implicit bias, to understand how they may or may not have been a, a source of the problem instead of a source of the solution. But it's gone so far that I've heard and seen people, Christian people, begin to say things like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you still have those views and opinions. I hope to never be in a church with people who are still so bigoted as people like this. And what happens is, is they begin, they begin to, to essentially become a bigot towards the bigots. Right? This is hurtful. This is harmful. When we weaponize the truth that we have been revealed to, the answer isn't to just not not do something. The answer is how do we be graceful and loving to all people? Because here's what we need to know, is that God did not say to, 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 to Jonah, don't worry about Nineveh. They're evil, let's just not worry about what they've done. We're just going to ride it off, pretend like it didn't. No, God was saying, that is evil. That is wrong. There is truth that they need to be adjusted. But Jonah's self-righteousness on the other side created a wall so that he could not interact with them. And so while I will stand up here this morning and say racism is 100% wrong, it is a sin, it is an issue, Your, uh, uh, opinions on this pandemic and everything else going on, but the answer is not to treat the people on the other side like outcasts. The answer is not to push them away and say, well, those people! I don't know if God loves those people. I don't know if those people could actually have a relationship with God if they believe that, if they think that, if they do that. 
As Christians, you hear me, hear me, hear me, please, please, please listen, do not miss this. As Christians, as a church, as a community of faith, we must stand firm on truths that people in our society need to lean into, but we cannot go so far that we forget to extend grace and an environment in which we invite all people to experience the loving, compassionate words in the gospel of Jesus. You see, the message of Jonah begins to take shape. That no matter who they are, no matter what they've done or how much you disagree, there is only one person who has the ability to determine whether or not someone is worthy of God's love. And that person has already made it abundantly clear that he will not relent until the people repent. And we cannot be so uh, above anyone that we think that we have figured it out. Because that is what sin does to us tries to separate us, create wedges and walls that we cannot overcome. You see, Jonah's running and hiding has more to do with the state of his heart than it does the currents of his culture ebbing and flowing around him. Because here's the truth, is that there will always be a boat to take you the other way. There will always be a boat to take you the other way. There will always be an opportunity, a justification, an excuse to take us away from the presence and the will of God. At times it will be easier, more comfortable, or perhaps even more fun to disobey God. To leverage truth in a way that is demonstrative and not helpful, or to withhold grace because we do not like those people. Like, like, just think about this for a second. Imagine, imagine for a second that, that, that someone had a life-threatening disease and they went into the doctor and the doctor said, hey, you've got these three things that you need to change. These three simple things, change them, cut them out of your life, and you're going to live and you're going to prosper. You're going to have a much better life moving forward. And so this person comes home from the doctor and they say, hey, what, what was the deal? We thought you were about to die. Oh, I just need to stop doing this, stop doing this, and start doing this, and, and I'll be better. Okay, cool, so that's easy enough. And they say, well, yeah, actually, I don't think the doctor knows what he's talking about. I don't think the doctor really, really knows what he's talking about. So, so, so I'm just going to go ahead and continue living the way that I want. Like, like we would laugh, right? We would kind of mock at the foolishness of that person. And this is the setting of Jonah, that the person who on the outward maybe perhaps looks spiritual, but internally they are drier than the Mojave Desert. And that's God's gospel calling each and every person to that relationship with him, no matter how close or how far you seem to be from the Lord. The story of Jonah continues, verse four. It says, but the Lord then hurled a great wind. So Jonah's on the boat, he's headed to Tarshish, running away from the, the presence of God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and they cried out to his God, little g, false God, pagan God, not real God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, and perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And then they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and it fell into Jonah. And so what happens next, I'm gonna summarize it and then we're gonna finish out this chapter, is Jonah reveals, it is me, it is my fault. I ran away from my God. And they're like, what are you doing, dude? Like, we're all about to die. How do we fix this? And he says, you need to throw me overboard. 
It's the only answer. I must be a sacrifice on your behalf so that you may live. And look at how the sailors respond, picking up in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore, they called out to who? The Lord. Notice, they were calling out to little G God. Now they're calling out to big G God here. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. And so they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, splash, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's interesting, the sailors in this moment, they act much more religious than God. They understand that the, the, the gravity of this storm was not natural. This, this hurricane that kind of came out of nowhere, they began to see this is not something natural. This is not just a wind current. That this, there is a, a, a being, an entity that caused something so, it was just so ginormous that we have never seen this before. And they're trying their hardest to row to shore. They're trying their hardest to look out from one another to make sure that the ship doesn't go down. Meanwhile, Jonah's asleep in the bottom of the boat. He's curled up. He's taking a nap. And the captain comes up to him. He's like, we've got a problem up here, dude. And so he's like, okay, what seems to And he walks in. He's like, oh, yeah, this is bad. Do you have any idea what's going on here? And he's like, maybe a little bit. <laughs> maybe just a smidge. You see, you see, my God wanted me to do something. I ran the other way. And they're like, Why? Why would you do such a thing? This is, this, is, this is ridiculous. So what do we need to do to save ourselves? And he says, you need to toss me overboard. And they begin to think, is there some other way? Let's row harder. Let's get rid of more cargo. But Jonah was so consumed in this moment with his own issues that he didn't get up. The mariners, they are, they are praying to their false gods, but at this moment, Jonah won't even pray to his the sailors, they're seeking common good for all aboard, yet the man of God could not be bothered while he wallowed in his own mistake. Ironically, in this moment, the sailors seem to be more open to Jonah's God than even Jonah did. Call out to your God that he may save us. Here's a couple of truths as we get to ready to kind of wrap up chapter one. Number one is that storms come. You know this. I'm not just talking about weather. I'm talking about the storms of life. Storms, they come. They come and go. Sometimes they come a few at a time. Right when you get out of one, another one seems to pile it on. That storms represent the anger of God for the sin that is breaking and ruining his creation, right? We know this because it says the Lord hurled the great wind. He caused this storm. But let me be clear and say this, that not every difficulty in your life is a result of sin, but every sin will bring you difficulty. That the sin you harbor within your heart, you cannot outrun God and you cannot sleep it away. That the storm clouds will always follow the ships of sin. That disobedience, it doesn't always start out bad. Jonah was peaceful, he was taking a nap, but the storms always catch up. See, I like to put it this way, that sin is like rust. He, we like to think that, okay, if I've done something so bad, it should be obvious from the get-go. 
right? But sin is like rust, and rust starts from the inside out. Something toxic has gotten in and begins to corrode from the inside out. It's a slow-going process, but before you know it, it's compromised the entire thing. You see, sin is not like a bullet. It is not like a blow to the head. It is not something instantaneous. Rather, it first sits beneath the surface under the waves of our life as it makes its way up. What's the harm of just a little pornography? It's just my eyes, my heart, no one's going to know. I work really, really hard, and there's a lot of money going in and out. Uh, you know, they're not going to miss just a few extra dollars that I take off the top. Well, perhaps if they treated me better, I wouldn't be so tempted to talk poorly or hold on to this bitterness against them. So what the storms did is it revealed the rust of Jonah's heart. Let's not be so naive to think that our sin only has implications upon us. See, the great irony at this point of the story is that Jonah has run away from Nineveh because he does not want God to, 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 to show mercy to those people. And yet here he is, he finds himself on a boat with pagan men, uh, sailors, praying to false gods, and who turns to God as a result of Jonah's mistake? The sailors. Those people. As much as we can look at Jonah and say, bro, you messed up, we can also take solace in knowing that God is always at work in our life, even when we don't see it or think he ever could be. Next, we see that storms, though, are reminders. Storms are reminders of two things, that the world is broken and so are we. But even at our lowest, even when we are asleep in the, in the hole of the boat of life, God is coming after us. You see, God cannot be loving, get this, unless he is angered by sin. Some of us, we, 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 that's where we begin to push back God. Well, if God was loving, why would he be angry? See, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. See, God must be angry if he loves you and I when sin begins to wreck and control our lives. If God just let us be, if God just said, whatever, forget about them, they've made their bed, they've got to sleep in it, God would not be loving. Think about the people who are closest to you. Think about the people who you love the most. Think about those who you cherish with more than your own life. Does it not make you angry if they hurt themselves? Are you not found fuming if they continue in a pattern of things that, that ruins their life? You see, sometimes we get this mixed up and we say, well, God can't be loving if he's angry. But in fact, it's the opposite. God could not be loving if he never got angry at the sin that ruined his life that he created for us all to enjoy. The opposite of love is not anger, it is indifference. And in this moment, storms, whether we like them or not, are a reminder that God is not indifferent to you and I. He is relentlessly pursuing us. He has a, a reckless love that says, I will not stop until I am with you yet again. Lastly, we're going to close with this point here, is that there are always waves of grace. Always. That God's grace is determined in the same manner in which the storm will cease and the sun will shine again that the waves are lapping against the side of the boat, threatening to break it apart beneath the surface. God has created a solution. 
Beneath the surface, even though the sacrifice of one man will save those in in the entirety of the boat, there is something beneath the surface to yet again give Jonah a second chance, a third chance, a fifth chance, a sixtieth chance. We don't know how many times. All we know is that as the storms are raging and we feel those waves beating against the boat of our life, when you feel the waves of the storms of life, threatening to break everything. That is God saying, I am here. Let me in. I have a solution. I am with you. Are you willing to let the sacrifice of one man who we now know to be Jesus Christ so that you may receive that grace beneath the surface? That even when Jonah thinks he has successfully boycotted the mission to Nineveh, God uses him to reach the pagan sailors in some. God is going to do what God is going to do. So as we move to our time of response this morning, I want us to think about this for a brief moment. The difference between sin and grace. Sin is something that you and I are very good at. Sometimes we call it brokenness, sometimes we call it mistakes, sometimes we call it things we haven't learned. Whatever it is, it is something that you and I are very good at the ways in which we run from God, the ways in which we hide from God. Sin is running from God, but grace is God running to us. A loving God, a compassionate God, a caring God, who is, who is angered, who is fuming, which he has people who he has loved, who he has called out to live compassionate lives, to live on mission, to make a difference in the world around them. And God is essentially saying, I have a way. I have a way. My storm will remind you not only of the brokenness, but it reminds you that I am here. I am coming after you. I am chasing you down. And unless you believe that there is one man who is thrown overboard, we can live our life in the boat. Day after day, week after week, month after month, we can sit in the boat and watch it rock back and forth. The wood is flying off the sides, the sails are getting ripped across the sea, and we begin to think, what is wrong? What what is life? I don't even know what to do with this. I don't know what to make of it. And God is saying, hey, I'm here. I'm here. Those waves are not waves of danger. Those waves are not waves of destruction. Those waves are waves of grace. As your life rocks back and forth, let it be a reminder to all of us of the reckless, relentless love of God that is trying to chase us all down. God is saying, I know you have ran. I know you're trying to hide, but I'm still coming after you. We can play this game all you want, but I'm coming after you. And so the way in which we remember the graciousness of God is through the work of Jesus Christ. If you have your communion, I'm going to invite you to get that out with me this morning as we continue to worship. Spoiler alert, the book of Jonah, as he gets thrown overboard and he goes into the belly of the fish for three days, it's a foreshadowing that there is one man who's thrown overboard of life, except he wasn't worthy to be thrown overboard. 
That's Jesus. Because of the sin of the world, because of us in the boat, Jesus says, I'll go over. And I will wrestle with death for three days, for 72 hours, only to be spat out onto dry land yet again so that you may have a second chance, a third chance, a 50th chance to walk with God and to live out the mission to reveal his kingdom to all people. So let's remember how Jesus is our Jonah. Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, he held up the bread. He broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Then he held up the cup, knowing just a few short hours, he would die the most painful, gruesome, excruciation, death on our behalf. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. We invite you to continue to worship with us this morning. And may we, may we rejoice, may we sing songs of celebration and praise that we are people of grace because of the work of Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. We give you praise, honor, and glory. We thank you for your sacrifice through your son, Jesus, that makes us whole. Lord, may we stop running, may we stop hiding, and have that relationship with you that transforms everything about us. It's your name that we pray.